All right, we're in the book of Acts. If you have a Bible or would like to turn there, uh, flip there, open there on your device, Acts chapter 10 is where we're going to be. It was 1986. I was 14 years old, and I felt the need, the need for speed. I was the target audience of the original Top Gun movie. My friend and I, Jeff Walker, were so entranced with the Top Gun world. I bought a book at Barnes & Noble. This is back when people bought books um, that were actually something you could hold. And it was a description of all of the military aircraft at the time. And I remember going through and reading about the F-14 and the F-18 and the F-16 and looking at their top speeds and how fast they could reach Mach 1 or Mach 2 and thinking, well, I don't want to fly that one. I want to fly this one because it reaches Mach 2 faster than the other ones. Like this is some full-blown 14-year-old like geeking out, wanting to be, and if you've seen it, and if you've seen this summer, the new Top Gun movie, I've seen it three times, sorry. Um, <laughs> But that opening thing about Top Gun and that it is the best of the best, the elite fighter pilots. And so, man, that just did something for my 14-year-old boy heart that was like, I want to be the best of the best. So Jeff Walker and I proceeded to go to the barber in our town and say, we would like the Tom Cruise. He's like, what are you talking about? We're like, you know. Top Gun. And so we tried to get our hair the right way. Jeff had a way to get Ray-Bans. I did not. But we wanted the look. We wanted, that's what we wanted. So I did not become a Top Gun pilot. Didn't get anywhere close. Um, I actually, the closest I got was when I was an intern in Dallas, Texas at a church. There was a guy there who was one of the leaders uh, in our ministry, and he had been an instructor at Top Gun. And I was like, like, that's kind of how I felt. His name was Tommy Bain. And I was like, oh my goodness, really? Um, but one of the things that, as I've reflected back, because I watched this again, watched this the other night with my wife, and same kind of weird nostalgia kind of coming back, like this thing of sacrifice and of giving yourself to something and being the best at something. And I applied that to being a pastor, Maybe. <laughs> Not to set you guys up, but I think I brought some potentially wrong thinking into being the best of the best when it comes to being a pastor, to being elite. And I actually heard somebody say this yesterday in a podcast, said so-and-so who is arguably the greatest living English preacher of our time. And I know what that person is trying to do. They're trying to say something nice about somebody who had mentored them. But at the same time, what I'm learning about Jesus <clears throat> is that there are times when you say things like that and it's like, eh. I don't know if I want that attention. Titled today, Preaching is for Professional Christians, question mark. Is it? Is it really? You can actually find an article out there if you want to go looking for it. And these are, and I say this only because I kind of came from this tribe, but people who are super, super reformed in their theology 
kind of get to this thing. And I, one guy like laid it out in scripture. There is a kind of preaching that is only reserved for certain people. Only they can do it. And it's this word and this word and this word. And I couldn't disagree more because it's not what I see in the Bible. It's not what I hear. And we're going to get there, but I, I want to show you today how you and me thinking that it's for professionals leads us to what we're doing in the Western model of church, which is, ah, uh, I'll just leave it to Chad. I'll just leave it to so-and-so. I don't really know if I can say much. I'll just try to get them to church. Let them hear somebody else. And Jesus, I think the whole time is saying, hey, <laughs> hey, you go into the world. You proclaim, you teach, you bear witness to who I am. But we were like, well, I think I would actually rather let the professionals do this. So let me throw this in another direction for you. Before we even jump into the passage, because I'm going to hopefully prove my point by looking at what happens today with Peter and Cornelius, but are you ready for all of this to be gone? The building, the music, the sitting in chairs with nobody beating on our door telling us to stop. Are we ready for that? What if this was gone? What if your faith in Christ was left to What's happening in here, your devotion? What if it was just you in a prison cell somewhere? That's actually reality for a lot of people in the world today. But I think, and scripture tells us, we're gonna reach a point in history where this will be gone. It won't be like, yeah, we've taken over most of the world and look at all these churches and come on, Jesus, we did the work. It actually tells us that it's gonna hit the fan and we're gonna be either saying, I'm out, too hard or like Paul in a prison cell telling Timothy, fight the good fight. I know out there it looks like they're winning, but this is the real fight. So what will you do if this is all gone? What will you do? So I used to read this book, the book of Acts, as history, not as a how-to. Meaning, yeah, that's how it happened. Pretty crazy stuff. Look at all, like how God established the church. Look at these professional Christians doing their thing. Aren't we glad that happened? And now we don't have to do all that stuff anymore. And we can just come to church and we got books. We can just email somebody the gospel. We don't have to actually get our hands dirty. In today's story, I want you to see the opposite. There are no professionals and there's only one hero. It's Jesus. There's only one hero. And I want to recap real quick before we jump into reading the, the characters. If you weren't here last week, we have Cornelius, a Roman soldier. As a reminder, just to give you a picture of Roman soldiers, Roman soldiers were the ones who crucified Jesus. It's not that long since the crucifixion and the resurrection. So they're not exactly the favorite people of the Jews. We have Peter, a Jew, who's been told, I want you to go to this Roman soldier, to his house. They've both received a visitation from Jesus in a certain form. One is a vision, the other is an angel. Either way, they both needed to be visited. They both have issues. 
Cornelius is good, but not good enough. Peter is on mission, but is leaving people out. God says, this is how I want to do it. Peter, go. There's people coming. Tells him three times to make sure he gets it. He gets it. He goes. He's here. The people are amazingly in a place of saying, tell us everything that God has commanded you. And that's where we pick up verse 34. Peter is like, okay, here goes. So here we are. First two verses. Peter started to talk. He began to speak. Now I truly understand. God doesn't show favoritism, but in every nation, the person who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. What does the fruit of a believer in Jesus look like? What evidence will there be in your life? And before we even get into his sermon kind of thing that he does, which is not from a professional, I just want to ask the question of what fruit are you seeing in Peter right away? So I think evidence that there will be in the life of a believer, there will be an upward, onward growth ever increasing in their understanding and knowledge, but also getting smaller and lower the longer they know Jesus. Less important, he is more important. Less of a fight when it comes to you actually giving in to his truth and his impact on your heart. You bend easier. Remember we talked last last week about bending under the weight of the hurricane of God's love and his truth. You bend fast. You walk around like this and with a limp like Jacob because you have been affected by God. But there's something, and you see it right here, more than honestly any other thing. And I think as I reflect on whatever, 27, 28 years of ministry, this is the thing that I notice the most in somebody. It's not how many Bible verses they know. It's not how great of a speaker they are or how many people they've witnessed to. It's this, it's a person who can humble themselves and say, now I get it, I was wrong. I was wrong, I get it. Peter is one of the most important witnesses for Jesus and the good news AKA the gospel of his life, death and resurrection. No doubt he is. He's been with him three years. He's been involved in key events. He denied him. He was brought back, forgiven. He's been a part of multiple miracles. He's been a speaker. He's been a preacher. He's been a part of miracles himself. Not just that he witnessed them, but actually he has been the hands and feet of Jesus. But guess what? He's still growing and he needs correction here. And so thus he says in verse 34, now I truly understand. Look that phrase up there in a couple of different dictionaries and Greek and grammar and all that kind of fun stuff. And basically what he's saying is like, I realize how true it is. It's really, really true now. You have that happen in your life where one thing was true, but then it grows in intensity What else is implied here from what Peter says is, I was wrong. I was wrong about this. The way I viewed you was wrong. I get it now. Our second grace anchor, which are just kind of our our values, the things that we talk about of how we stay on mission is this. Jesus is truth. First one is he's the most important person in the room. Second one, he is truth. And his word gives life. Not that he just speaks truth. He is truth. Truth 
comes into focus in our life because he is a person and he pursues us. He comes after you. He doesn't give up, but you can reject him. Peter could have skipped this part right here. He could have just started in. Let me tell you about the gospel of Jesus Christ. He came, he's going to say it in a minute, but he starts with, I really get it now. I was wrong. I want to always be able to say that kind of thing. Honestly, and I'll say this, like, I feel like, and Lisa and I have tried to model this as parents, you know, and I grew up with that whole thing of you do as I say, not as I do. And I've tried that one. It doesn't work. It doesn't work on your kids. They're like, what? I've had moments where even though I was right in what I was correcting in my children, Meaning I said you couldn't do this and you did it anyway and just lit into them. You ever have that moment where somebody's correcting you and it doesn't matter how they correct you because what they're saying is right. And what the spirit of God impressed on my heart and also on my wife is that how we do it. And so I have had moments where not only was I still right on what I was saying to my kids, but I've had to get down on my knees. and I literally have done this and said, listen, daddy was right. Now my kids are all huge now, but... I was right in what I was talking. I still think that's important. But the way I did it was wrong. Say that to a six-year-old. They're like, that's what I thought. You know, (laughs) even if they do, you still can't be like, no, listen, I said, you still hold it to the standard of Jesus, which says I was wrong. I was wrong. Show me a follower of Jesus. I don't care what age. Been following him for 50 years. If that person can still this week be corrected by Jesus, I say it is the most powerful evidence of the life of Christ in them. The most powerful evidence. This past week, it was a simple thing. I forgot to do something. And my wife had asked me to do it. And I had possibilities for excuses I could give. I did. I could have said, you know, this and all this, this, you know, how I started my text. I am so sorry. This is on me. Now I've learned that's better approach (laughs) in marriage. That's a better approach than having to undo something later by the excuses you're giving. Show me in your life And I think it's one of the best things that we can say. What about somebody that doesn't know Jesus and we come and talk to them and we've made a mistake? Owning that is way better than you just being the one who delivers the perfect news. Peter is not somebody who ignores it. He could have been, but he isn't. Says a lot about his heart. How about you? How do you listen to Jesus? on a daily basis. How do you listen to your friends who may be trying to correct you right now? Well, they're younger than me and they're not as mature as I am and they haven't known Jesus as long as I have. And so therefore I'm not gonna listen to them. It has to be somebody who's been mature longer than them. Nope. It's another evidence. Can you be corrected by somebody who just came to know Jesus? Who's bringing to your attention truth that you learned 20 years ago, but that you're not living? Also another great sign. Can your wife correct you? Can your kids correct you? Can your parents correct you? How long does it take you to say, you know what? I think you may be right and I'm wrong. When you sit down at church, 
This is another place of evidence for tenderness in your heart. And I don't care if it's this church or another church. Do you come to church with a checklist? You are a part of the theological secret police. And you are listening to me or whomever's up here or anybody in a Bible study. And you're like, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Oh, that's not how I would say it. Question mark. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. That is really, no, oh my goodness, I'm sending an email. And sometimes those things, so we listen, not because I come and I want to grow. I want to listen. I want to learn, Lord. I want to be transformed to become more like you. No, we come to see. Are you saying what I think you should be saying? Good. I'll stay here. But if you say too many things that I think aren't the way I should say it or the what I want or that makes me more uncomfortable, then you know what? I'll just leave. It's like, the, that's what we do. So we do now. We let the professional Christians do the speaking we listen, and when we don't like it, we just go to another church. And so churches, let me just say this as a big, it's not that it's all the time, but large majority of growth in the Western church is sheep swapping. Oh, look, our church is growing. Where'd you come from? Church down the road. We didn't like what he was saying. Our list wasn't met. We'll see how you do. Or... Do you sit down and say, Jesus, I need to hear from you today. Today, I want to grow. What's Peter wrong about? He thought they were out. He thought this group of people was out and that there were only certain ones in. And he says it in verse 35, every nation, the person who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. God doesn't have favorites. That's great news. Everybody's got a chance. That's great news. But Peter, did you say everybody who does what is right? Uh-oh. Psalm 14, and Paul quotes this in Romans, there is no one righteous, not even one. There's nobody who understands, nobody who seeks God. All have turned away. All have become worthless. There is no one who does what is good, not even one. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Well, that sounded like good news, but now it doesn't. If Peter's proclamation of the news about Jesus, the good news about Jesus stops here, if he doesn't say anything else, it's religion. It's earn it. It's work hard. Be good. See if you can tip the scales. There's got to be more, right? So let's dig in. And verses 36 to 43, kind of the information he gives is full. I just want to say it. It's full of stuff. And we could take a hundred different directions and dig down and show you how this is connected. I'm not going to do that. I'm going to show you some things that the Lord put on my heart this week, but let's read it first. It's a beautiful example of, you want to tell somebody the good news about Jesus? Here is a way that is beautiful. Here's how you can do it. So verse 36, Peter starts speaking. He doesn't stop, but he has said, I'm sorry, I was wrong. Now let me speak to you. Verse 36, he sent the message. God sent the message to the Israelites, proclaiming the good news of peace through Jesus Christ. He is Lord of all. You know the events that took place throughout all Judea, beginning from Galilee after the baptism that John preached. God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit, with power. He went about doing good, healing all who were under the tyranny of the devil because God was with him. And we ourselves are witnesses of everything he did in both the Judean country in Jerusalem, 
Yet they killed him by hanging him on a tree. God raised him up though, raised up this man on the third day, caused him to be seen, not by all people, but by us whom God appointed as witnesses who ate, drank with him after he rose from the dead. He commanded us to preach to the people, to testify that he is the one appointed by God to be the judge of the living and the dead. All the prophets, in other words, the story up until this point has been talking about this. This isn't new. That through his name, everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sin. So a ton in there. And I just want to jump in and say, the Lord focused me in on a few angles, kind of what's your angle? Here's a few things, because this is what scripture is supposed to do. You're supposed to read it and allow the Lord to speak to you. Now, a lot of times I have people, they'll come up and they'll say this, you know, that was pretty good, but you miss this, 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 and this. In other words, like I was listening with my checklist <laughs> and you didn't say all that could have been said. Why didn't you say this? Why didn't you take it down this pathway? And because I'm not trying to say everything. And sometimes I'll say, you know what? That's wonderful. That's awesome. And maybe if you speak next time, that can be something you say. That's an important piece there too. There's, that's one of the things beautiful about scripture is you, you turn it and look at it and it has all these beautiful facets, but I'm not trying to say everything, okay? So I don't want you to be like, why isn't he talking about that? And why isn't he talking about that? Because we could focus just on those verses for several weeks. I don't want to do that. I want to show you what God did in my heart this week as I read this, okay? And then I want you to study it. If you, like, if you have not been spending time in God's word, and I don't mean checking off the list, I mean spending time with him through his word, open up this week to Acts chapter 10, 36 to 43, and start asking the questions about yourself, about the peace of Jesus, about the tyranny of the devil in your life, about forgiveness. It's like, ask those questions, but let me show you just a few things. Here's a question. Who is the primary actor in these few verses? Yeah, just, just think about it for a second. Let it sit there. I'm gonna ask several questions, but it is absolutely the Sunday school answer. Ready? Who is the initiator? Who does the stuff? Who sent? Who anointed? Who went about doing good and healing? Who raised him from the dead? Who caused him to be seen alive? Who commanded us to preach? Who will be the judge of the living and the dead? Whose name and in particular belief in that name brings forgiveness of sins? Now say it. Jesus. He, this is the acts of the risen Lord Jesus. Peter says, hey, look at what God did. If you want to know a great key component of being able to talk about the good news of Jesus, the first thing you get rid of is the ability for us to be good. And you say, this is something God has done for us. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. He lives the perfect life. He dies the death we should have died. He rises from the dead. He conquers, he ascends, and eventually he comes back. Peter, and this is also us. I want you to think about this. What's his part? What's your part? What's my part? Not as a professional pastor, because I don't think I am. I have you all fooled if you think I am. We are just the delivery system. 
just the delivery system. If you know Jesus, have surrendered your life to his kingship, you can have the confidence of the best preacher. And I kind of say that and also say gross. (laughs) Okay, (laughs) quote marks, meaning I'm trying to be a little sarcastic there. But you can have the confidence to say, I am a living letter from Jesus and the ink isn't even dry. Anybody know those verses from 2 Corinthians? Verse 3, chapter 3, you show that you are Christ's letter delivered by us, not written with ink, but with the spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human hearts. And the author of Hebrews brings to mind Jeremiah's word about the new covenant The Holy Spirit also testifies about this for after this. He says, this is the covenant I will make with them. I'm going to write my laws on tablets. No, on their heart, living letters. I'm going to write it on their minds. So look at 36 again. He sent the message. He wrote it. God writes, verse 39, we are just witnesses. Now, like I said, there's a ton in there I could highlight, but those are the two things I want you to think, to see. He wrote it, we just witnessed it. He speaks it, we just deliver it. This is essential in understanding the good news of Jesus Christ. He is the one who has accomplished all of that. We're just the paper. The ink is still wet, but meant to be read. Why not just send the information? Email it, text it, leave a voicemail. Isn't it funny that all three of those things are rarely even used anymore? Email, text, voicemail. Inventions of the last 20, 30 years. Maybe email a little bit longer if you were a super nerd and back on the intranet and all that kind of stuff. But yeah, you know that stuff from a long time ago. But these things are rarely used. What do people do now? Snap. Be real. I don't even know that. My wife does that one. I don't even know that one. Like there's all these things now. It's like, we don't even do email anymore. And people have actually reverted when they do send an email. You know what they do? They start using shortcuts in their email, like LOL. TTY, yeah, TTYL, talk to you later. In emails, I can't even bother to write out this whole sentence. Just, it's just too much for me. Why doesn't God just do this? Why not just write it in the sky? A plane flies over. Why not have just boom? And then all of these words start falling and everybody receives it in their hands. It's like, listen, God is real. Jesus really died and he rose from the dead and you can have life. Just accept it right now. Why does Jesus choose instead you? Why living letters? I read this week that what you believe about God and your theology, meaning words about God, is only as good as your ability to stand at the gates of Auschwitz and proclaim it to the Jews on their way to death. Whoa, that was pretty heavy. I stood actually in Auschwitz this past summer with my son, Caleb, just massive complex. Hundreds and hundreds of 
barracks in a concentration camp and train tracks that led all the way to the gas chambers. And so imagine yourself standing on the side of those train tracks and here comes a mom off the train holding the hand of her little child. And you can find these pictures, grandparents, and they have been selected to go to the gas chambers. And then before they go though, you can speak to them. The good news of Jesus is only as good as your ability to proclaim it, the gates of Auschwitz to those on their way to death. Hmm. Hand out a tract? Four spiritual laws? Anybody know what those are? If you died tonight, evangelism explosion, and God says, why would I let you into my heaven? What would you say? Question and answer. Did you raise your hand? Did you go forward? What is this whole thing about being a living Letter. If someone were to read your letter today, the ink written on your heart from Jesus, what would it say? And the reason I'm going here is because if I go and read Acts chapter 10 verses, what is it? 34, 36 to 43, which is all the facts are there about what you need to know as far as your sins, Jesus being the king, being under the tyranny of the devil, that he's gonna judge the living and the dead at the end, that there's forgiveness and all all the information is there. And if I go and I just say, hey guys, I have this, it's so important, just listen. If you'll just listen for a second and I'll just read this through and then everything will be acceptable, right? Is that how it works? No, no. God wants living letters, people in the lives of other people. So what does Peter's letter say? Not just in the words that are coming out of his mouth, but what does his letter, his actions as a living letter of God say? So first of all, Peter has been sent. God was sent. Peter has come to this guy's house. For some reason, we have accepted the fact that we're just going to say, yeah, y'all come to us. Hey, We're at 1363 Homer Road. If you think you can make it by once a month, Christmas, Easter, maybe. Peter went. A living letter delivered in person. He didn't wait for them to come to a building. Church is where Jesus sends you. Not the building you came into on Sunday. Because church is about being a part of the living body of Jesus. There may be parts of your life where Jesus is writing his good news, his gospel. Let's say you have accepted the life that Jesus lived. You know you need him as a substitute. You can't do what is acceptable, what he brought up at the beginning. You know it's his doing what is acceptable for you. You're like, yep, I get that. You're like, he had to die. He had to be a substitution for me. I get that. I agree. He rose from the dead. Yes, he did. And he's coming back. Okay, I got it. Check it off. Now I'll just go about the rest of my life and nothing will change. That's not what's happening. And we see that even in Peter. Did Peter know all those things before he got here? Yes. But what does he do? Humbles himself and says he's wrong. The ink just got bolded. 
in his heart. He was here to talk about the love of God. He was here to talk about forgiveness, about change, about transformation. And it was kind of there, a little bit faded. And when he humbles himself and said, I was wrong, all of a sudden, it's like it got a highlight marker right through it, bolded. And they're like, well, hey, we can read. We're picking up what you're putting down. We can read it because you are standing here representing for us God's love, God's grace. Next, when you carry a letter from the king, you represent his authority, his kingdom. As a living letter has the words of Jesus and his good news, you have the power of the incarnate Jesus, his work on the cross, his resurrection, his ascension, his return, his fulfillment of the kingdom coming back. You've got that authority in your life behind you. That's powerful. You standing in front of someone else, the king is behind you. The same power that rose, raised him from the dead is behind you. So again, a couple of the things, the specifics in here, just so that we're clear on knowing what he's talking about. And I want to say this too about the gospel because there's, there's a confusion at times. And I've had people say this, like, you didn't say all of the things about the gospel. Did you know when you look at the New Testament and you actually see the gospel presented that it doesn't always look the same. It doesn't always look the same. John talks about eternal life. Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they don't use that word. You know what they say? The kingdom. What gives? They're interchangeable. John talks about the internal effects of the gospel on your life. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, they talk a lot more about how the kingdom will affect the outward effects of your life, how it will change the way you treat other people. Which one is it? Both. Paul takes it into a whole other direction, starts talking about a legal standing before God and justification. It's almost like we're standing before this court, eternal court, and we need God to say, this one's righteous. Well, which one is it? Eternal life, kingdom, inward, outward, legal. What is it? Yes. Yes. So a few of the specifics, but the main specific is that Jesus is our substitute. Jesus, his life for ours, his work for ours, his doing, our accepting. I'm going to run through these. A new kingdom is here versus the other one. People under the tyranny of the devil. Jesus is the king. He offers peace. It's good news. He's doing good, but they kill him. God raises him. All we're doing is just witnessing. We witness, we preach, we testify, we witness. Those words are all in there. They all are different words, but they all kind of mean the same thing. Declaring, heralding, preaching. You sharing the life of Jesus. He's been appointed to be the judge of the living and the dead. And also there's forgiveness in his name. It's left to us to say yes or no. You can either stand before him and he will say, because of your separation from me, condemned or forgiveness. Those two things are there. So there's a mystery at work here because as living letters, while we're sharing the message that we've received, we're still kind of being written upon by the Holy Spirit. I think that's part of the reason that God doesn't send emails, why he doesn't just send it in a book form that is separated from the people who are delivering it. He wants you 
being changed and transformed, people becoming like him speaks volumes to others. The truth of what he has done has been written before time, but the Spirit's pen and ink to your heart should be a daily occurrence. God is writing on me. So what happens when they read God's message on Peter? Living letter. Here we go. Verse 44. While Peter was still speaking these words, in other words, halfway through his sermon, the Holy Spirit came down on all those who heard the message. The circumcised believers, in other words, the Jews who came with Peter, watched this happen and they're like, no way. They were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out even on the Gentiles. For they heard him, heard them speaking in tongues, declaring the greatness of God. Then Peter responded, can anyone withhold water and prevent these people from being baptized? In other words, we should just go ahead and do this. Let's have a baptism. They've received the Holy Spirit just as we have. So he commanded them to be baptized in the name of Jesus. Then they asked him to stay for a few days. I love that. The sermon is cut short, to which I think most people would be like, amen. <laughs> Make him be quiet. Verse 44, while Peter was still speaking these words, the Holy Spirit came down on all those who heard the message. As I read this part, it, you can be assured it was an interruption from heaven that said, hey, that's good. You've said enough. Peter, we're ready. Stop talking. We're ready. Stop talking. We're ready to jump into what God has been doing. So as Peter is reading, God is writing. And he has been writing. The people are ready, but more importantly, God is ready to do his work. He's already been working. I love this, that the Lord interrupted what he was planning on saying. Are you ready for Jesus to interrupt the way you've been doing church? The way you've been witnessing slash not witnessing to people, just trusting that the professionals would do it. The Spirit comes down and fills the people. It says that they spoke in tongues. Now, this could either be spiritual language of the gift of tongues. It could also be, it says that it was just other languages. Anybody know another place in Scripture where this happened in this book? Pentecost. It was a sign. It was an important sign. The reason the sign was there was to say, hey, Peter, everybody involved, God is here. You can be certain that he is doing this. The sign is for Peter. The sign is for the circumcised believers, the Jews who were there to say, God is at work. He is doing this. Where is Jesus asking you to go and to a certain group of people or friends that you don't like where he is going to be working and you're going to need to be certain and sure that he is calling you to do that? Peter says, hey, they've, been, they've received the Holy Spirit. Let's let them be baptized, outward symbol of an inward reality. And then I love this too. They ask him, stay with us. People that were enemies want to hang out. Real community can't be faked. And when you get it, you don't want it to go away. Beautiful things happening. So if preaching is left to professionals only, let's just say that in history. If preaching had been left to a select few to spread the message of Jesus, we wouldn't be here. We wouldn't be here. The church is here because of people like Miss Agatha in my life. 
I was probably this small. It was my first Sunday school experience. I don't remember a word she said, but I encountered the presence of Jesus in her sweet way. And I do remember there was probably some flannel graph stuff going on and some things hanging there, but we went to Miss Agatha's house. I'm pretty sure she made us cookies. But for a couple of years, Miss Agatha, McCall Avenue Baptist Church in Knoxville, Tennessee, represented for me what I needed to hear. And it was a key piece in me moving. She was preaching. She was living that out. She was a living letter to me. So if you know Jesus already, preach. Please don't leave it to me. Please don't leave it to me. We will not accomplish the mission of Jesus if you don't preach in your context, in where God has you. And what's the best way to start doing that? Be ready to say you were wrong. Humble yourself. Let him write his story on your life. If you are considering Christ, if you don't know him yet, if you're like Cornelius and the group of people here who were just waiting, waiting for the rain to fall, basically, and you're sensing it's time to bow the knee to Jesus, do it. Do it. Because what they're doing before is digging a muddy well, trying to find water. And what happens is a rainstorm from the Holy Spirit, which just falls and all you do is go, okay. Humble yourself for both groups, whether you're a believer in Jesus or whether you're somebody who is considering who he is, enough words, Lord, write it on our hearts. We're ready, Jesus. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for just instruction, Lord Jesus, from your word. I thank you, God, for Peter, for Cornelius, for the people here, Lord, how they were experiencing your presence, your community. Lord, I love that it wasn't in a building. I love that it wasn't um, this perfect order of worship and singing and this. Lord, it was kind of haphazard. It was uh, a meeting that they didn't expect. And Lord, even with, okay, I've got to say something to somebody, then let me work on that for a long time and let me get the perfect words. And if somebody would just show me exactly what to do and actually, Lord, he gets halfway through what he's saying and you're like, okay, enough already. Let's get these people saved. Lord, we ask God for your grace to be living letters for you, Jesus. And for some, you are just beginning to write on their hearts today. We pray God that they would be ready and willing to allow your spirit, Lord, to write uh, those first beautiful words of Jesus and your love for them, Lord. And God, that on their own, they are unable to do what is right. Lord, that they have been living under the tyranny, the kingdom of darkness. Lord, that peace is available through you, Jesus. And that comes through your cross, through your resurrection. And Lord, that one day we will stand before you as the judge. And that those who have found forgiveness in your name, Lord, will be the ones who spend eternity with you. God, would you give us the, the humility, Lord, to admit when we're wrong? Lord, I can remember most in my life the moments where I had to say sorry. And God, I think that's a, a key, those are key growth places as well in me.
We thank you for uh, your spirit at work in us. We pray, God, you would write, uh, continue to write your story um, in the lives of people here. Lord, we thank you for uh, your presence among us. And we ask all of this in Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand together and sing.